In our culture, we praise intelligence. We admire the use of reason. We look up to people who are simply brilliant. But is it possible that we have allowed our rationality to become an idol? That we have used our reason to sit in the place of God and decide for ourselves what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, what's loving, and what isn't? Hi, I'm Joseph Walter, and this is Loving Theology. Now, we probably don't really find ourselves very tempted these days, and in our culture, to bow down to a wooden statue. That's just not something that really happens in Western culture. Um, but that doesn't mean that idolatry isn't relevant for us today. In fact, I think that idolatry is one of the most common temptations that we face. And here's the way that I would understand idolatry, is that any time that we allow something to take on one of the roles that God has reserved for himself, we have allowed that thing to become an idol in our life. And here's the reality of it, is that because God plays so many roles in our life, that means that the opportunities for idolatry are nearly endless. And in this series, we've identified what I think is probably one of the most important roles that God plays for us. And that is defining good and evil for us. And I think that any time that we allow something to influence our definition of good and evil, we have allowed that thing to become an idol. In fact, what we saw in the first post of this series is that the sin at the Garden of Eden was exactly this form of idolatry. That whenever she chose to eat from the, whenever Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she was choosing to become like God. She was choosing to know for herself what is good and what's evil. She was choosing to decide for herself and be the definer of good and evil for herself rather than allowing God to play that role. And, and the honest truth is that I think that we do this every single time that we sin, whether consciously or subconsciously, we are choosing our own evaluation of what's good and what's evil over God's evaluation. If you're not convinced, think about it this way. Every time that we choose to sin, we look at something that God said would bring death and we repeat the words of the serpent, I will not surely die. In this way, I think that this form of idolatry is perhaps the most fundamental because it makes an appearance literally every single time that we sin. But as we think about that and apply it to our concept and our question today, I want to explore the topic of ethics, the subject of ethics. Because you see, ethics is the study of the knowledge of good and evil. It's trying to use our reason to figure out what's good and what's evil. And while that might sound virtuous on the surface, that might sound like something that's good, something that we should pursue on the surface, there's a reality that the story of the Garden of Eden demonstrates for us. And that reality is this, that choosing for ourselves to study and know and try to understand good and evil is choosing death over life, that that study will eventually lead to death. But why does it? I wanna to explore today why our reason is insufficient, why our intelligence will never get us to the right answer of what's good and what's evil. Now I can recall sitting in my college ethics class and discussing how do we make the right decision. And the purpose of the class was to give us some tools that we could use to analyze the situation and make a decision between what was right and what was wrong. And one of the main tools that we were given was reason or analysis to analyze the situation, consider everyone who was affected by the decision and how it would affect them. The reality of course was so much more complicated than that theory. Because how do we know how it affects them? Is it just based on how they feel? Um, or how do we actually know if it's actually helping them? 
or causing them harm. There are so many ways to justify so many things throughout that process that our reason can get us to so many different answers. And at a fundamental level, here was the problem, is that I was using my own reason and my own knowledge to decide what was good and what was evil. To make matters worse, whenever we use our own definition of good and evil, we'll inevitably get it wrong. The reason that we can't seem to get it right is simple, because we are not God. You see, we saw last time, why does God call something good and why does he call something evil? It's because what's good is good for us. And the reason that he calls something evil is because he loves us, because of the damage that it does to us and the way that it hurts us. But whenever we use our own reason and our own intellect to decide what's good and evil, we'll inevitably end up misunderstanding something that God made good, something that God made beneficial for us. And because we misunderstand it, we'll end up misusing it. Whenever we misuse it, we take something that was originally meant for good and we'll turn it for evil. We'll take something that was originally going to benefit us and we'll use it in a way that hurts us. That's what happens whenever we rely on our own reason and intellect. We inevitably take something that's valuable, something that's virtuous, something that's good, and we turn it into something that's harmful. The reason that this happens is quite simple. Because true wisdom, godly wisdom of knowing what's good and what's evil is simply beyond our grasp. Our reason will never get us there. The example that I wanna use is freedom. Because freedom is a good thing, and it's, it's one of the things that we can probably all agree on. It's one of those virtues that I think in our society, especially in the US, is elevated above every other virtue. But I think because of that, because we take this thing that's good and we emphasize it so much, I think that sometimes an overemphasis of it and a misunderstanding of what true freedom is ultimately leads to probably some of the most common mistakes that we make in deciding between what's good and what's evil. Let me explain. Have you ever heard prostitution called a victimless crime? Why is it called a victimless crime? The reasoning goes something like this, that if no one was forced to do it, then no one was harmed. That basically what we've done at this point is we've elevated the virtue of freedom so high to the point that we think that if it wasn't violated, if no one was forced, then we reason that no harm was done, no evil occurred. But the reality, the truth of the situation is that both people are victims of the crime of prostitution. In fact, it's in speaking about prostitution that Paul urges us about the damage that sexual immorality can do. Let me read this out of 1 Corinthians 6.12. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That concept doesn't even fully make sense whenever you think of freedom as the only guide for what's right and wrong. How can you sin against your own body if you're choosing to do it? How can it be something that's evil? How can it be sinful? Let me take this same illustration and take it one step further and possibly bring it a little closer to home. Pornography. And the reality is that the deception that pornography is and the trap that it is is something that I am all too familiar with. I struggled with it for years. And as I think back on my struggle and I think back on the justifications that I would use to keep on coming back to pornography, what I realized is that they were rooted in this same misunderstanding of freedom. That I would apply this thinking of no one's being forced, so no harm is happening, no evil is being done. But the reality is that Paul's instructions here in 1 Corinthians shatter that. See, make no mistake that his instructions in 1 Corinthians 6.12 about sexual immorality absolutely apply to pornography. And whenever he says these words, he shatters our justification that no one's being hurt by telling us 
you're being hurt. You are sinning against your own body. Just because it didn't violate someone's freedom, that as we understand it, it didn't violate their freedom, doesn't mean that it was good. Doesn't mean that no evil happened. You see, this should sound a lot like what we talked about last time from Isaiah 5. That we've taken something that God calls bitter. Something that will actually do harm to us. Something that will be bitter for our soul, like pornography. And we've said instead, this is sweet. It's pleasurable. But we know the truth. That what we think is actually sweet is truly bitter. That it doesn't make us happy. It makes us miserable. And that's why God calls it evil. Now, if there's one thing that's comforting, it's the fact that we're not alone in making this mistake. We certainly weren't the first people to make it. In fact, the apostles wrote over and over again to churches who overemphasized freedom to the point that they were hurting themselves with something that God meant for good. You see, over and over again, the churches actually misunderstood the concept of freedom to the point that what they called freedom, what they thought was freedom, God actually had to correct them. No, that's slavery. You think that that's freedom, but it's truly slavery. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, a little earlier in that chapter that we were reading from earlier. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Do you hear that? And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. See, what Paul was trying to express here is that you are thinking about freedom, but the reality is that you are choosing to become a slave. And, and Paul wasn't the only one. Peter also talked about this. In one of the, the letters that he wrote in 2 Peter, uh, in chapter 2, he's talking and he's warning the church about false teachers. And keep in mind that these are false teachers. In other words, these are people who likely used reason to convince other people that they were right. And he's explaining that they don't understand freedom either. That they think that they're free, but they're actually slaves. He says this, they promise freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's 2 Peter 2.19. So these verses, I think that they show us what happens whenever we try to use our reason to understand morality, to understand what's right and wrong. We get it so far backwards that we look at something and we go, oh yeah, 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 that's freedom. And God goes, uh, no, no, guys, that's, that's slavery. You're, you've, you've got the wrong end up. And it's like, we, we, we think that we're smart. We think that we know what we're doing. We, we think that we've, we've reasoned through, we've thought about all of the variables, but at the end of the day, what ends up happening is we can't tell which way is up. And maybe to even make this point a little bit further, I wanna talk about the time that God tried to explain what true freedom actually looks like. He does it in Romans 6, uh, 18 through 22. I've got another post where I talk about this in maybe a more full context, so I'd encourage you to take a look at that. But let me just read a little bit here. And the point that I'm really making here is that we have such a poor understanding, our reason is so limited, that in order to explain what freedom looks like, God had to explain it as slavery. That's how bad our reasoning is. It says, having been set free from sin, become slaves of righteousness. Slaves, are you sure? Why are you using that word slaves? And it goes on. I am speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm using words that you guys will understand because of your natural limitations, because your reason will get in the way otherwise. He says, whenever you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Doesn't that sound about right? That whenever we were in sin, we thought it was freedom. 
and this is something that we talked about in, another, in that other post, Set Free, we talked about that slavery to sin actually sounds like freedom. You get to do whatever you want, but it's actually a lie. It's not true freedom. We end up bound to those things. So he says, now that you've been set free from sin, become slaves of God. And it's almost offensive to us because we emphasize the virtue of freedom. So much so that the idea of being slaves of God is offensive. But God doesn't use those terms lightly. He uses them because he knows that's the only way I can communicate to you what real freedom looks like. That's how backwards we get it. That's how limited our reason really is. And here's the other thing is that freedom is not the only place where our reason falls short to explain the truth to us. You see, the Bible is full of these things called paradoxes. And basically what a paradox is, is it's two things that we know are true. They're both in the Bible, but rationally you can't reconcile the two of them. They don't make sense together. You don't know how that's possible. Uh, Let me just give a few examples like works and faith. These are things that are paradoxes. Are we saved by works? Are we saved by faith? There's so many verses that that confuse us on this point. It's something that we actually talked about at the beginning of this series. Or maybe that our strength comes through our weaknesses. That's weird. That doesn't make sense. Uh, We have another series that we talked about that, resting in our weakness. Um, Or or maybe it's, you know, something even more fundamental, like the concept of the Trinity. You know, uh, how how does that work? Three in one? That doesn't make sense. In fact, it's a very common objection to Christianity. And the reason it's objection is because it's not entirely rational. It's not something that we can understand with our minds. Or or maybe it's the idea that we have to lose our life in order to save it. That sounds backwards. Or or how about the, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus? How was Jesus fully God and fully man? Was he 50-50? No. He was 100-100? Well, 100-100 is, is not one. One plus one is not one. How is that possible? These are the, the, the questions, the objections that we have whenever we read through the scriptures because our rational mind, our reason, can't understand these things. You see, the reality is that God's wisdom is so far beyond our reason that our reason will never really be able to understand it. Our reason was never meant to be our God. Our reason was never meant to teach us the truth. Our reason was never meant to tell us what's good and what's evil. It's far too limited. We need God to tell us these things. Now, before we close out this series, I want to talk about another example where we allow something else to influence our definition of good and evil, and that's society. Society often influences the way that we understand what's good, what's evil, what's loving, Next time we're going to talk about how we can allow society sometimes to sit as an idol in our life and take that place of God in defining good and evil for us. It's something that we all do at different times and can so subtly influence the way that we think about things. And like we said, it's so important that we get this right because if we know what's good, we know what's good for us. We know how to find joy, how to find fulfillment. So be sure to hit subscribe, hit the bell, so that you don't miss this opportunity as we talk about the way that our culture can sometimes become a God in our life. Thank you for joining us today.